today on Ways to Flourish, Dr. David Dapashi of the Student Health Center talks to us about the long-term effects of stress and some helpful tips on managing negative emotions. You know what? You are probably the most optimistic person that I know of on this campus. Oh, wow. Well, that's, that is really high praise. I appreciate you saying that. I, I do feel, I will say, I do feel very grateful for pretty much every day. I mean, I, I walk into work and I just, um, I look around campus and I just, I don't know. I mean, I, what's not to be thankful for? I, I just feel so, I, I feel so uh, grateful just to be working around this William Gray community. It's just, uh, and, and being, you know, amidst the students and the energy that a campus brings, especially our campus, I do feel like I'm, I live a very charmed life. I feel very, very fortunate. That's wonderful. And I think that even as optimistic and happy as you always are. And I think it was last week we had a meeting and you were saying things are getting a little rough out there. And I thought that that was such a great example that you're being open about that. You know, things are getting a little challenging and how tough things can get for all of us. Well, and I think it's, I think it's important to remember that, you know, no matter how optimistic any of us are, we all can have good, not, not as good days. And, you know, I think it was said very eloquently in the past uh, podcast you've already done, you know, this year in particular has been so difficult on so many levels, right? I mean, um, we have the pandemic that we're dealing with, the physical isolation, the physical distancing, which can be hard on people, um, really the, uh, the political landscape, which has been so stressful for folks, it, the economic downturn as a result of a lot of this and some of the, you know, economic stresses that it places on people. So just, I mean, it's been an all-in-all all really, really hard year. If I could say three things to people, I would just say, you know, if you're feeling a little bit down in the dumps, a little bit stressed out, or maybe, you know, you've suffered from mental health issues more chronically, um, one, you're not alone, right? I mean, on any given year, about 20% of us experience a significant depressive or anxiety type episode. And our lifetime prevalence, so the li lifetime likelihood of suffering from anxiety or depression on some level approaches about 50%. So that's half of us, right? And so, A, you're not alone. Um, two, you're not to blame, right? Okay, we talk a lot and we're gonna talk a little bit about practices and healthy, uh, healthy behaviors and healthy things that we can do uh, to combat stress and to help us feel more positive and to help us flourish. But that doesn't mean that if you do those things, that anxiety and depression still can't you know, kick in and be a problem. It's, you see, I, I hear too many people who feel like you know, they look at their life on paper and everything looks fine and they feel guilty and they feel like they're doing something wrong because they just don't feel it. Um, so, I, so I would just really encourage people to not take it personally or not blame themselves. And then number three, probably the most important thing is there are effective treatments, right? Whether it's uh, pharmacotherapy or medications, talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, exercise, we're gonna talk about all the different ways that people can kind of connect. Um, if you're a spiritual person, connecting with a spiritual person, academic issues, sometimes connecting with an academic advisor, a good, a good friend at another college. I mean, there's a lot of ways that we can tap into sources of support. But, you know, I recently talked to a very beloved and uh, very intelligent uh, professor here, Warren Mary, who just uh, couldn't, couldn't have expressed his praise, you know, more openly about all the things that health and wellness is doing, or that our department is doing, and all the wonderful programming. And at the same time, you know, he indicated that he himself has struggled with depression over the years and, and actually required hospitalization when he was in college. Um, and he's, he just thinks, you know, obviously accessibility and everything has gotten so much better than it was back when he was in school. But the one thing he cautioned the, me against or, you know, kind of wanted to remind me about was the fact that, you know, people who do have chronic mental health issues uh, need to remember that 
you know, all these self-help tips and healthy, healthy behaviors, they're always going to help you physically and mentally. But understand that sometimes even doing those things aren't always enough to kind of lift us out of that, that place. But, but just knowing that, you know, the help is available in so many different forms, I think is really important. With that said, you know, the truth of the matter is we are woefully, I think, underserved as a nation in terms of mental health accessibility. I came across a statistic, which I'm going to turn into a little quiz here, because I think quizzes can be fun. But do you know what percentage of counties in America don't even have one practicing psychiatrist? My hope would be 0%. That would be a great hope. <laughs> a practical guess, realistically, really guessing, 20%. 60%. Stop. Yeah. That's so a little too high. It's, 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 it is. And so if you think about that, 60% of the counties around America don't have one practicing psychiatrist. That's, that's kind of, that is a little troubling. Now, fortunately, you know, because mental health has become, um, I think we, to some degree, we've helped destigmatize de- it just with raising awareness. And really, it falls squarely for a lot of folks into the realm of primary care. And so a family practitioner, an internal medicine doctor, you know, these sorts of folks are very well trained in managing a lot of uh, mental health issues. So we don't always need to see a psychiatrist if we're suffering from anxiety and depression, but it does kind of highlight the fact that we really have a long ways to go, I think, still before we can really truly say that we have the resources that we really need to optimally handle. And you uh, say that's reflective of, I mean, here on our campus too, right? The Student Health Center, I think from an outside perspective, I would always identify, you know, a physical need of someone coming to you. But really, a good percentage of the people that you see are there for mental health reasons. I would honestly, Lindsay, I would say probably thirty to forty percent of our mm-hmm. visits um, are in some way mental health visits, mm-hmm. and um, and so yeah, we here at the health center we, we work with students a lot on those topics, and we feel very comfortable doing that. So, and we hope that students will feel comfortable coming to us and using us as a resource if they feel like they may be struggling with something um, that may be mental health related. So with that said, I, I know I threw out a couple of little statistics. I don't really love statistics, but I will say that, you know, I'm going to talk, I think, a little bit today about um, stress and effects that stress can have on our body in a more chronic sense and also ways that we can maybe undo the negative impacts of stress. So we talked about 50% of people having depression or anxiety over a lifetime. 60% of counties don't have psychiatrists, right? But what percentage of people have endured or or dealt with stress? I mean, I think that's a pretty easy one. Mm, Yeah, 100%? I think that percentage is just about right. Exactly. I don't think any of us, um, I mean, the birthing process is stressful, right? So even like newborn infants have endured some type of stressful, you know, event because the actual process of passing the birthing canal is stressful. So stress is ubiquitous. That's something that we can all relate to. 100% of us for sure have endured stress. And I want to talk a little bit about kind of the really the physical things that can happen as a result of stress. And the fact that the stress response in and of itself is not inherently bad, right? It's in fact, it's kind of higher, it's really hardwired into our DNA, right? So imagine for a moment, if you will, you are walking outside on a glorious afternoon, much like today, watching the leaves slowly turn brilliant colors of red and yellow. And, you know, you're losing your mind in wellness thoughts. And, you know, you're just, your heart's beating regularly. Your breathing is deep and easy. And maybe you stop and squat down and try to inspect a little cluster of mushrooms a little more closely, right? And then right then, out of the blue, the neighborhood dog comes out barking at the top of its lungs, Right and just gnarling its teeth and kind of dashing straight at you, right? What happens? Well, your body kicks into self-preservation mode, right? And so the sympathetic nervous system takes over, the parasympathetic nervous system kind of takes the back seat, 
And the hypothalamus, a tiny little part of the base of your brain, starts releasing chemicals, which lead to a cascade, which ultimately will get the little adrenal glands, which are tiny little glands that sit on top of your kidneys, to release stress hormones, right? And the, big, the two stress hormones we're gonna talk about really are adrenaline and cortisol. Adrenaline gets your heart beating faster. It raises your blood pressure by causing vasoconstriction of the, of the blood vessels. And cortisol allows glucose or the blood sugar in the body to be more readily available. So it kind of inhibits insulin and increases glucose production or availability uh, to the brain in particular. And all of that is designed, right, to get you to be able to run away from the immediate threat, right? And then of course, Typically what would happen is you realize the dog is now wagging its tail, right? It's, it's, it wants to be pet, it doesn't want to hurt you. I just was a little startled at first and now it's friendly. So, so at that point what happens, right? You, you know, the cortisol and the, the adrenaline levels start to drop and you start to return to a more baseline situation. So in and of itself that stress response is normal and it's self-preservational, but what happens then if it just doesn't really ever quite get turned off, you know, right? And so in, in 2020, we have folks that are dealing with possibly ailing family members, raising children while trying to go to school or a grad program, you know, going to school and concerned for your grades and not sure what you're really going to do with your future. You're not sure, you know, uh, if you're going to get into graduate program. It, it goes on, on and on. Like, right? where, where does it stop, really? Where, where does it, right? You know, and, and like I said, we've got the pandemic. We've got just so many things that are on our plate. And we're just, we live in a state of constant stress. And so what does it mean? when that cortisol and that adrenaline surge just never really goes away, what happens? Well, it's okay for a few minutes because you're redirecting the energy towards things that are more immediately beneficial, but in the long term, it suppresses the immune system, right? It can be taxing on the cardiovascular system. Do you know when most heart attacks happen and why that is? I think my guess is first thing in the morning. Right, you're absolutely yeah. right. Most heart attacks happen between 4 a.m. and 10 a.m. Yeah. So, and, and the reason for that is the cortisol levels are highest around 7 o'clock in the morning, 7 to 8 It's because you're waking up and realizing what you have yeah. to go and <laughs> do throughout your day? Could be. Now, yeah, well, it has to do with just sort of the diurnal rhythms. If you, if you end up sort of working night shifts and you kind of sleep during the day, you can move that around, right? But for most people who do sleep during the night, your cortisol levels are highest around 7, 8 a.m. And that's why we actually have people come in for 8 a.m. cortisols when we're looking for certain conditions. So a couple things just, you know, just to jump right out. So, you know, the fact that um, cortisol levels are more chronically up in, in people that are chronically stressed means their blood pressure will be higher. It raises blood pressure. And blood pressure is one of the number one factors in cardiovascular risk. So heart attacks, strokes, right, are going to be much more common in somebody who is chronically stressed. Diabetes is more common because again, high cortisol levels inhibit the body's ability to utilize insulin and blood sugar levels rise. Also leads to weight gain, which then can be a little bit of a vicious cycle. But you know, certainly cardiovascular problems, digestive difficulties because stress diverts blood flow away from the digestive tract. So a lot of times people complain of uh, digestive issues. Not to mention, you know, obviously mood disorders and just you know feeling down in the dumps. So, yeah, so it's really important that we figure out, you know, how we can, you know, mitigate or blunt this, this stress hormone response. And the truth is we really can't always change our situation. We can't really eliminate the stressors. What we can do instead is modify how we respond to them, right? And, you know, this isn't rocket science, and I know that I, I listen with a lot of interest um, 
to uh, both Kelly Crace's and Eric's uh, podcast. I almost fell asleep uh, in Eric's, and that's a good thing, right? I, mean, I felt like I was melting into the ground, into the molten core of the earth, as he put it. But there's a lot of things that you can control, and um, we know that natural endorphins, okay, and, and, and vasodilation happens when you exercise, right? So you hear about that runners or exercise exercisers high, um, and that is because you are burning that adrenaline off. You're kind of burning that cortisol off and you are replacing it with endorphins, which are really more like the serotonin that antidepressant, anti-anxiety medications are. So in a sense, it's sort of the exercise itself is a little bit of an antidepressant, anti-anxiety medicine without taking the medicine. And of course, the other thing about you know exercise is that in the long term, it just increases your vagal tone. It's going to slow down your heart rate, lower your blood pressure improve your body's utilization of glucose so that, um, you know, will make diabetes and other chronic illnesses, you know, less likely. Another thing that happens um, when your stress levels are up is, interestingly, since we're talking about COVID and the pandemic, is that your immune system actually is suppressed. Because, you know, when a dog is coming at you or a giant lion is coming at you, your immune system is not really that imminently necessary, right? But in the long term, it certainly is, right? And if you're chronically stressed, we know that your ability to fight off viral infections like COVID or the flu is gonna be diminished. And even your body's ability to deal with you know, free radicals and things that could cause cancers, you know, it's gonna be more of a problem. So again, you know, getting back to the importance of really trying to engage in activities which will increase endorphin-like hormones and decrease the stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline. Exercise is a huge one and it does not have to be anything incredibly intense. Um, exercise can be overdone, but I think, you know, it doesn't have to be four hours in the gym or it doesn't have to be a 10 mile run, you know, doing something physically aerobically challenging for 20 to 30 minutes, more days than not. So four days a week um, is really all that it takes. That could be a walk outside. It could be a ride on your bike, swim at the pool. And also conscious breath work is really effective too at lowering heart rate as well, right? And that, and that brings us, so that's exercise. See, that brings us into things like, yeah, meditation, mindfulness, and, and breathing. Absolutely. So, I mean, just, you know, slow, concentrated breathing, meditation, mindfulness, all of those things reduce stress hormones. And as a result, reduce the negative impacts on a number of organ systems. So sleep, sleep's a huge one, okay? So again, you are more likely to have a stroke or a heart attack if you sleep less than five hours, okay? Anywhere from 40 to 100% increased relative risk. So, and again, you know, with sleep, I mean, there's so many reparative things that happen during sleep, but with sleep deprivation, you're basically flushing down the endorphins that you would otherwise have. If you're on antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications and you're sleeping five or fewer hours a night, you almost might as well not be on the medication because you're, you're putting it in one end, flushing it out the other. So is it anything over five or does everyone have their own range that's ideal or are we, I mean, we always hear like the eight, what is the yeah, real? Seven, right, now, right now, and they've kind of adjusted things recently, but seven to nine hours is considered a good range. Now we, you know, with that said, there are obviously some people that say, hey, you know what, I've always slept six and a half hours and I've always felt good with that. And that's, that's probably fine. But, you know, I talk to a lot of students who really do burn the midnight oil and they don't get, you know, five hours. And the beauty is, you know, when you are 20 years old or 18 to 22, your body does have a lot of reserve, okay? And so some of these chronic things I'm talking about, they're not going to affect you in college. But, you know, the bottom line is a lot of the habits that you develop here, you're going to take into your adult life. And so it really is important to develop those healthful habits now because as we get older, our bodies don't 
do as well with ongoing chronic insults and chronic stress. But but yeah, definitely seven to nine hours, is, it looks like it's probably the sweet spot for most people. Yeah. And I would say too, yeah. I think that from a health lens, that's one piece of advice that I wish all of the students on this campus would take. By taking care of yourself today, you're taking care of yourself for tomorrow. And I think, you know, especially at this phase of life and, you know, all of these things that seem so far away, take care of this now because you really are investing in what is to come for you in the future. I think that is such a great point, Lindsay. And I think so many people just kind of say, well, when I get out of school and yeah. when I get that first job, then I'll be able to practice self-care and I'll be able to practice, you know, healthful behaviors. You know, and that sort of thinking, I think, unfortunately, just galvanizes, you know, behaviors that aren't necessarily the most, most healthy. And, you know, it, there really is no time like the present. None of us are too busy to practice wellness now. And, and then just, really, if you let those bad habits continue on in this time, really, you've got to move into this phase where you're just really making corrections right. and, you know, trying to essentially, in some cases, maybe reverse damage. That exactly. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, a pound of, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. It's, it's never been more true than it is, really, I think, in, t- in terms of just wellness and taking care of your body. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what I love about, you know, working here and what I love about all the programming that health and wellness has is that, you know, whether it's mindfulness or yoga or exercise programs or meditation, you know, I've worked with Becca Marcus a little bit on some of her, you know, mindfulness programs and they're just, they're just excellent, you know, and I mean, you really do see the benefits right away. You know, the benefits are long lasting, but they're also immediate. You know, as a physician, we've really moved away from a purely medical model of treating stress and anxiety and depression that may kind of result from excessive amounts of stress. Um, and we, you know, recognize that while medications are certainly a helpful adjunct in many cases, you know, that really holistic self-care model and the basic building blocks of wellness, exercise, good nutrition, good rest, mindfulness, meditation, finding some time to laugh and kind of enjoy what you're doing and nurturing meaningful relationships with others, you know, finding some time to pursue a hobby that you enjoy. If you do all those things, again, it's not that you couldn't have depression or anxiety, but your body will be so much more equipped to handle some of the negative effects of that, of that stress. Agree with you. I think that when you're incorporating these healthy habits, it just opens up the possibilities. I always compare it to my peripheral vision, you know, when I get to that place of high stress and my head just feels so compacted and blocked and bricked up and it's just like straight forward. And then, you know, I've had this classes with Becca too, and I just love how it just opens up your perspective and you become so aware of the way that you're interacting or treating yourself, the way that you're treating other people, and really just, you know, it awakens your approach to life, I feel like. I think that's so well put. I could not have, I could not have put it half as well, but I, I do agree with you. I also think, you know, that every day, you know, is an opportunity to build on what you've done in the past, but also to get a fresh start. And I think pushing the reset button every morning is something that's always been so important to me. No matter how wonderful the day before was, I like to sort of wake up, think about what was wonderful about yesterday, maybe what wasn't so wonderful about yesterday, maybe things I wish I'd done differently, interactions I wish hadn't gone a certain way. And I kind of sort of mull them over maybe as I'm lying there in bed for a couple minutes before I get out. Once I get up, I just think it's so important to push the reset button and say, this is another opportunity, another 24-hour opportunity to learn something new, do something meaningful for somebody else, grow in some way, right? I know this has been said by other people in health and wellness that are far uh, more studied and wiser than I am, but I think Dr. Kelly Craze in particular has talked about the importance of process over outcome, right? 
And it's like, if you are doing your best work and you are learning something new and you're passionately throwing yourself into a project, the outcome, you know, it's important. Of course, you want it to, to be the outcome that you desire, but it's not the end all be all. And the, and the actual ultimate outcome really doesn't matter because you will have learned from the experience. You, will, you have given it your best and you will take something away from that that will allow you to be even more successful in the future. So I think if we, if we become more process oriented and less outcome oriented, I think that's a huge way to kind of help, you know, reduce stress as well. Expressing through your values. I love it. Waking yes. with purpose. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's all these wonderful expressions that, that, that exist out there that I still need to be more familiar with. But yeah, you nailed it. Tune into our next episode where Dr. David Daffashi talks about his personal experience with COVID and quarantine at Richmond Hall. <laughs>